We've been in Nehemiah for uh, close to two months. I've been kind of parked in the Old, Old Testament. Uh, two months is probably a long time to be talking about Nehemiah. Nehemiah would say it took me less time than that to actually build a wall. So too much talking, Doug, not enough building. Um, but the Old Testament, um, to me, highlights the sovereignty of God. Uh, when you think about the stories of the Old Testament, it just truly places God above all else, God above everything. And it's a story told within the context of the people of Israel, his chosen people and often a very conflicted people. And Nehemiah is part of that story. It's actually a, a very short little excerpt, a little picture into the life of God's people. Uh, a life of, of people who struggled. And Nehemiah, if you look at um, the, New Te- the Old Testament, it's one of the very last books written. And then there's a period of, some people say it's a period of silence that nothing much is written for about the next 400 years, at least within the context of our Bible, until you get to the Gospels and the presence and person of Jesus Christ. So if the Old Testament highlights the sovereignty of God, I believe everything in the Old Testament and even everything within Nehemiah points us to the New Testament and to Jesus. The supremacy of Jesus as the highest expression of God's heart for restoration. The Old Testament, it's told within the context of the children of Israel. In the New Testament, it's told within the context of the church, of you and me. And I think the conflicted... Do you hear that same echo? I don't know if I move... The conflicted people of Israel, I think, mirror our own weakness. They mirror our own struggles. And yet in the New Testament context, into what you might call the struggle of what it means to be human, has shone the light, the life, the power, the sacrifice of Jesus who has come to be our Savior. So when I think about Nehemiah, I think about those people, and at times we may struggle with why they struggled so much. The truth is that we are not unlike them, that we are probably disturbingly similar to them. In chapter 9 of Nehemiah, the, the people of Israel admitted before God their historical pattern of behavior. They acknowledge God, we, we get distracted. We tend to turn to other gods, even though they're simply made with human hands. We fall away, we tend to do what's right in our own eyes. 
It's a confession. Chapter 9 is really a confession of people. And they look back into the history of their own people and say, that's what we do all the time. But as they look back, they also see into their, what I might call their checkered past. They also say, you know what, we have experienced the grace, the mercy, the patience, the protection of a loving God who has intervened on our behalf as a nation so many times. We are the same. That into our own, I'm going to say, somewhat checkered past. We see the intervention of God on our behalf through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So in chapter 10, the entire group, all the people, all those who have been building, those who would call themselves children of God, sign off on what I'm going to call a covenant of obedience. And really, it's a vow on behalf of the people of God to put an end to what I would say is a cycle of unfaithfulness. That we're going to change our ways, God. We are going to, as a nation, get back on track. And by back on track, I mean we want to truly follow after you. That we will spiritually shape up. And I thought about that and about how many times I may have said that same thing to myself. That God, I'm going to put it into certain thoughts. God, I, I promise I'm going to put an end to certain behaviors. Certain attitudes. We sometimes say that to ourselves. At times we will say it to God himself. Say, God, you know what? That won't happen again. So the people of God in chapter 10 sign a document. Quite literally, they sign a document. And it's phrased both as a curse and as an oath. That we understand that if we do not follow through on what we are signing off on, we will reap the consequences. At the same time, if we adhere to what we promise, if we adhere to what we have signed off on, we acknowledge that we will experience your blessing as your people. You will be our God. We will follow you. And it says this, the people responded, in view of all this, and when that phrase means in view of everything we know about our own history. In view of everything we know about how many times we have fallen away, yet you have rescued us. In view of all this, we are making a solemn promise, and we're putting it in writing. And on the sealed document are the names of our leaders and Levites and priests. And the document was ratified and sealed with the following names. And then there's a 
a very long list of names. And they swore a curse on themselves if they failed to obey the law of God as issued by his servant Moses, and they solemnly promised to carefully follow all the commands, regulation, and decrees of the Lord our God. And they quite literally signed off. Really, it's a dec declaration, and I think a genuine declaration on the part of the people of God is that we can do better. We can get this right. The first signature on that document is that of Nehemiah, followed by other leaders, um, and then the rest of the people. And although I don't want to spend too much time here, I think there is some significance in that order. That it actually places accountability and responsibility on those to whom the people look for spiritual leadership. So there's something very sobering about that thought. And if we look at the Old Testament, it seems so often that when the leaders of the children of God, when the leaders followed after God, the people followed after God. When the leaders of the children of God did what was right in their own eyes, or in the Old Testament it often said, did evil in the sight of the Lord. The people suffered. People drifted away. I think that truth continues to hold true in the New Testament church. That if leadership falters, if things go sideways, and it can be relationally, it can go sideways sometimes theologically, the church will suffer. People will be hurt. People will likely be dispersed. And so I think that same truth remains that I think it's significant that Nehemiah says, I'll, I'll sign that first, followed by the leaders. The document they signed off on was more than a general statement of intent. It's not as if the people said, you know what? We'll give it our best shot. This is kind of what we hope to do. It was a promise on behalf of the people of God to do and not to do some very specific things. So if I, in fact, had signed off on that document, I could not later say, oh, you know what? I didn't really realize what I had put my signature to. It was incredibly clear. There are three things I want to highlight about what they promised to do, and there were probably more I could. And some of these we may think, well, these have a very Old Testament feel to them, and they do, but I think they apply to the New Testament and the New Testament church. So um, kind of think about it in that way. Number one, it says... One of the messages within this vow is that we will guard our marriages, our homes, and our children. That we will honor God within the context of our home. Now, it doesn't actually use that language, but it says this. We promise not to let our daughters marry the pagan people of the land, 
and not to let our sons marry their daughters. I'm going to expand on that later. They signed off on that. That won't happen. Number two, the people said, you know what, we're going to obey those Sabbath laws and regulations that you laid out for us as your people. And I've often uh, thought about Sabbath laws as being very much focused on a particular day or even on a particular year. So the seventh day or the seventh year, that these laws were all about those things. In reality, the more I think about Sabbath laws, they were about life itself. That to say we will honor those laws, those Sabbath laws, really meant that in all aspects of our life, day one to six, year one to six, we will live a life that honors what you've called us to do. And I'm going to read just part of what that means here. We also promise that if the people of the land, this would be people who are not of Jewish heritage or background, should bring any merchandise or grain to be sold on the Sabbath or on any other holy day, we will refuse to buy it. So it's kind of an economic pledge. Every seventh year, we will let our land rest. And we will cancel all debts owed to us. In addition, we promise to obey the command to pay the annual temple tax of one-eighth of an ounce of silver for the care of the temple of our God. And this will provide for the bread of the presence, for the regular grain offerings and bird offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbaths, the new moon celebrations, and the annual festivals, for the holy offerings and for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel. All those things the people of God say we will do those things. Number three, part of this vow is that they will honor the temple of our God. It's a statement really by the children of Israel that God, we will worship you. We will provide for everything necessary for those who work in and around the temple. We promise together not to neglect the temple of our God. And as I thought about those three things that I want to start first about the one in terms of marriage. The promise not to have their men or women seek marriage partners from other nations is a strong, incredibly strong comment on how central marriages, homes, and families are to the health of God's people. True in the Old Testament, equally true in the church today. Chris Weintz kind of spoke about that and highlighted that last week. That God's desire for his children not to, you might say, intermarry had nothing to do with protecting any kind of an ethnic or national identity or purity. But it had everything to do with protecting their identity as children of God. 
of protecting a community of faith that chooses to honor and obey God. We know in a New Testament context that Jesus broke down those barriers of nationality, that he says there is neither Jew nor Greek within the context of those who follow after God. The principle remains the same. If you're a woman, seek a man who also follows after the heart of God. If you're a man, seek a woman who follows after the heart of God. Our practice of dedicating children reflects that same heart. It's parents simply saying that we want to build as a family unit the reality of God into our home and into our children, that they would grow up to be children of God. We know that marriages that do not embrace common faith will face conflicted priorities. And in many, many ways, face conflicted lives. There are those who know this very well, some because they chose to marry someone who didn't embrace faith, and others who have found that their partner has suddenly left faith, and they find themselves in a home, in a family context where that bond of faith is no longer shared. As a church, we need to pray into those situations. We need to intercede on behalf of those men, on behalf of those women who are living that reality. And we need to hear stories at times, I believe, of those who have kind of experienced that conflict, who have found God to be faithful. Those whose stories would say that even, yes, I have, I have experienced exactly what Nehemiah is talking about in terms of marriage, and yet God has made a way out for me, for us. And we need to hear those stories. So that's the first vow that people make. It's about the family unit. It's about marriage. You might say it's like saying, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Second promise to keep Sabbath law was not about a day, I don't believe, but it was about a way of life. These regulations had economic um, ramifications about them. Um, regular business was to be suspended. Every seventh year, they promised to forgive debts thought about that one quite a bit this week, and to leave their land uncultivated. These laws speak to, I think, a sense of compassion. They certainly speak to a sense of forgiveness within the community of believers, but they would have been no easy vow. No doubt 
people would have preferred to have their debts repaid. Or if I was involved in working the land and it looked like the seventh year was going to be a great year for crops, it would have been difficult to leave the land alone. But these regulations would have encouraged the people of God to be very intentional in how they lived. To be wise and discerning, perhaps in to whom do I lend money and to how much. To be wise and discerning in those years from one to six to put aside both crops and money so that on the seventh year I could actually leave my land alone. So there's something about obeying the Sabbath laws that had to do with life itself. Our society has made it possible and perhaps the norm to live well beyond our means. We have a tendency to live according to our means, that if our means increases, generally speaking, our standard of living and the things we surround ourselves with increases. It's something else that we could think about as children of God. But in our society, we almost are encouraged to live well above your means. We know that it can lead to financial ruin. There are lots of stories about that. The other side of that is that it restricts the freedom to be generous people. That in our society, I think people would say, you know, I, I really can't be generous to others because I'm really busy being quite generous to myself. The Sabbath regulations, to me, are all about wise stewardship, about wise living. And those things seem to go hand in hand with being generous and compassionate people. And I think those regulations, I think the whole testament is about the restorative heart of God. And even in these regulations, I see the heart of God to restore. Allow the soil in the seventh year to restore its nutrients. We might say that's simply good agricultural practice. Restore people who owe you money to a place of financial freedom, of a fresh start. Restore them. I think within the context of the children of God, those would have been amazing expressions of compassion to each other. And they are, in a very real way, a foretaste of all that Christ has forgiven us. At times, I think, for many people, these regulations would have seemed impractical, perhaps unreasonable, and even, at times, unwise. But in these regulations which impacted, I think, all of life, God is challenging his people 
live as wise stewards so that you can be compassionate and generous people. And above all, trust me, I am your God and you will find me faithful. I am your provider. Thirdly, there was a promise not to neglect the temple. The Old Testament temple represented in a very physical way the dwelling place of God on earth with his people. It was a fixed, you might say, reference point for the children of God. A reminder of who they served, who they were as a people, and everyone had a practical part to play in making the temple and all of the regulations that surrounded temple worship in the Old Testament, everyone had a part to play in making that work. It says this, we, the priests and the Levites and the people, have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of our God at set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it's written in the law. And I referenced that earlier. Every one of you within the context of Creekside Church, the Bible sometimes refers to us as individuals, as temples of the living God, and that we are living stones within a temple, a spiritual temple. But in a Creekside, especially in a Creekside context, Anybody who has signed up to drive the trailer, anybody who helps set up the stage, teach in children's. Right now, Chris and I think Jenna are teaching in our, uh, with for our young people in our grade five, sixes. Those who operate in the front foyer, in a way, are contributing wood to the altar of our God. It is so incredibly practical what the people say we will do. Put our name down, we'll take our spot, we'll do that. We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord every year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree. As it is also written in the law, we will bring the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, of our herds and of our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests ministering there, we will not neglect the temple of our God. Jesus makes it clear in the New Testament that God does not dwell in buildings made with human hands, but that God dwells in the presence of his people. The Old Testament says God even dwells within the praises of his people, which is what we sometimes, I think, experience when we worship God in music. And in Hebrews, it reminds us, let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. People sign off on all of that. So all those people who are working on the wall, all those people throughout the story of Nehemiah said, God will do those things. We'll marry within faith. 
will keep the Sabbath laws, and God will honor your temple, will worship you. In chapter 12, there's a huge celebration. Chapter 11, again, is a, a chapter that has lots of names. Chapter 12 is a huge celebration. It's a dedication of the wall, and I think in a very real way, it's a dedication of a rededicated people of God. Two large choirs are arranged on top of this wall, which gives you some idea of the size of this wall. And if you recall in chapter, I don't know, two or three or four, when they started building, they were mocked, and one of the mockers said, if a fox was to run on top of that wall, it would crumble. We have two large choirs on the wall. It's a celebration, and they move in opposite directions until they meet and they gather at the temple. Nehemiah 12, verse 43 says this. Many sacrifices were offered on that joyous day, for God had given the people cause for great joy. The women and children also participated in the celebration, and the joy of the people of Jerusalem could be heard far away. Probably quite an astounding thing to witness. It has the feeling of a new beginning, a fresh start, God, you sent Nehemiah to champion this cause of rebuilding the wall. You proved yourself faithful, God, in helping us against opposition that came from outside, from opposition that came within. Your word has led us to confession and repentance as your people, and we have actually oath to follow after you and to obey your commands. So you might say there's great reason to celebrate. However, the parade on the wall, the celebration in the temple, and the promise to obey God proved to be short-lived. And for all their good intentions, and this speaks to me. In spite of all their good intentions and even honest efforts, even this chapter in the life of God's people that we read in Nehemiah did not end well. And in a way, it, I, I, I read it and I think, man, that's, that's sad. You know, why, why couldn't you have sort of got it right? But their best intentions, their efforts, I think simply highlight to me and to us that our best simply means we need someone to intervene on our behalf. Our best is not going to do it. And as I said, Nehemiah is one of the last books written. But to me, this reality about who we are points us to Jesus. And I think about so many of the songs, Julie, that you sang this morning that, that lead us towards Easter. And as Mike referenced, the incredible, incredible power of that story speaks directly 
to this truth about ourselves. As I thought about this Old Testament celebration, where apparently you could hear it from miles away, it made me think a little bit about the New Testament celebration that we call Palm Sunday, which is today. It was a day filled with great enthusiasm and great expectation that something big was about to happen. It says, the crowds that went ahead of him, that's Jesus, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this? They asked. And as Julie said, people threw their coats in front of him. They waved palm branches. I don't know if they might have been concerned when they saw Jesus riding in on a donkey. Or whether they simply found that somewhat odd or amusing. But it was a sign, in fact it was the fulfillment of a prophecy, and it was a sign about what was to come. That this was not a political leader or a political savior, but a spiritual one. This was not a powerful earthly ruler, but a humble king of a kingdom that is actually not of this world. This was not a man who would be honored and respected, but one who would be despised and rejected. And those who were shouting Hosanna, and yes, they were confused, they, were, they did not understand what was happening, but a few days later, many of those same people are saying crucify him. So as I think about Nehemiah, and I think about the promises to, to do better, to get it right, it speaks to me of our ongoing need for the intervention of Jesus Christ on our behalf. We know what it means to struggle, even as Christians, with putting off the old and putting on the new. We know at times what it means to struggle with faith itself. We understand what it means to sort of battle our own weakness. And yet, as Paul says, we give thanks to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sometimes how this all works out in the details, the trials, the circumstances, even the temptations of life may not often be clear. But as we look back at our lives, we may simply have to say, I know the gracious hand of God has been on me. That the gracious hand of God has been on my home, my marriage, my children, at times my own safety. That without God, without someone pointing me to God, I would not be where I am today. 
And I know there are those within our congregation who might say, I have no idea how the presence of God is even remotely involved in what I'm currently going through. I do not understand why I am where I am. I do not actually see a way out. And there are those people in our context who would say, God, I need you to build that faith into my life, and I need the church to help me. And I think about the fact that our Savior is acquainted with grief. Our Savior is acquainted with suffering. Our Savior is acquainted with being unjustly treated. And I want to say to some of you who may feel like for a time being you are enduring what seems unjust, unfair, or undeserved. Maybe for a period of time you are simply being asked to share in the suffering of Jesus who knows all those things. And I pray that even this morning, for those of you who might say, that's where I am, I do not understand why I am where I am, I pray that these would not be empty words for you or for us as a church. But this week we move towards Good Friday, and I simply want to end by reading a few verses from Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah, I think, is such an amazing amazing prophetic book written 700 years before the birth of Jesus yet it speaks about it so clearly he was despised and rejected a man of sorrows and acquainted with deepest grief we turned our backs on him and looked the other way he was despised and we did not care Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. Uh, I think that is such an incredible statement. Jesus has carried my weaknesses. It was our sorrows that weighed him down, and we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins, but he was pierced for our rebellion and crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be made whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. And the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. I want to pray and I'll ask the team to come up. Heavenly Father, as I think about uh, the story of Nehemiah and the story of your children, It reveals in such a, I don't know, crystal clear way, God, that we, we are people who need you. That in every way, shape, or form, God, we are children who need to embrace the cross and the risen tomb of Jesus. And Father, I pray that even as we head into this Easter 
a weekend and that celebration that, Father, you would remind us of your love for us. Remind us, God, that you came to truly set us free. And, Father, I pray that as we think about this week, about that truth this week, Father, may we get a sense of how great your love for us is. And I pray, Father, that that love would motivate us to live as your children. So speak to us this week, even as we think about Good Friday and Easter. Father, would you speak your mercy, your grace, your truth into our lives this week, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.